This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Now let's uh, maybe just get a little bit of uh, understanding about the role of the WTO is James Wise. He is the Senior Vice President at Height Consulting, and he is an expert on uh, global trade matters. Uh, James Wise, thanks very much for being with us. Well, as the President uh, just described the relationship between the United States and the World Trade Organization, maybe you could just uh, offer us a little detail about what role the WTO plays, and do you believe what the President uh, has described as a uh, terrible relationship? Sure. I mean, the uh, and thanks for having me on. I mean, the uh, World Trade Organization, you know, is the rules-based system for uh, uh, about 95 percent of world trade. So it is critically important for fostering um, uh, continued economic growth around the world. Uh, the president's comments are today, I think, are a continuation of, of what he's been saying all along is – he thinks American workers are getting a bad deal, and you know they're going to look at ways to undo the WTO's power. And you look at the bill that uh, was sort of leaked out today. It's just another example of how Trump is looking broadly at how to weaken the WTO. Well, based on your experience, I mean, you uh, I believe you worked for uh, Senator John Tester of Montana. You were chief of staff, right. legislative director. You must have looked at this issue. Do you believe the United States is being treated un- unfairly by the World Trade Organization? I think that there are certainly winners and losers in any trade environment. And I think what you're seeing is, you know, I've heard in recent weeks from, for example, a uh, D.C. representative of one of the big unions saying, you know, his guys have thought they've been in a trade war for years. And now, just now, we're finally having somebody talk about how the United States is being victimized in the trade war. On the other hand, you know, as you pointed out, I worked for a pretty rural state for a long time, and agriculture depends on uh, U.S. agriculture depends on really, really strong open markets. And so you have a situation where I think you've had some frustrating uh, uh, experiences on the manufacturing side, but to give those up for, um, uh, you know, agriculture interests as we're seeing is it's going to be hard. And I think it's really a challenge for uh the government, whether you're the president or whether you're a member of Congress who represents uh, a state or a district that is heavily dependent on trade, to balance the issue of winners and losers versus the fact that there is a perception, I think, out there among a lot of workers that global, the benefits of global trade have not been evenly and fairly distributed in the United States. Mr. Wise, uh, maybe you can help me out with something here. I'm a little confused because I'm old enough, and perhaps you are old enough to remember uh, violent demonstrations against the WTO a few years back, both on this continent and uh, and overseas, and it was from a leftist perspective. 
And now you have really the Democrats in Congress who are defending the WTO and the Republicans who are uh, more or less the the party of free trade actually coalescing behind the president's uh, protectionism or it could be construed as protectionism. What's going on? Do I need a scorecard to keep track of this? Um, it certainly feels that way. I mean, the politics of trade right now are really, really interesting. I mean, obviously, as you say, Republicans historically have been the party of free trade and low tariffs. And then along comes Trump and essentially turns the party's position on its head overnight. Um, and, and you know, Democrats have, have long been skeptical of free trade. But, you know, with Trump claiming that ground, as you point out, some Democrats are moving more towards free trade and sort of stressing the importance of economic connectivity with the rest of the world. And I think what we're going to see here over the next few months as you know, the sort of small-scale trade wars that we've been seeing with Canada uh, and with China start to heat up a little bit, I think you're really going to see some big decisions have to be made by both parties as they look towards November and to figure out how do we how do we sustain this position, or can we? I was thought, uh, the other thing that I always thought was the Earth is, you know, the world is getting smaller, and we're, we are more interconnected than we've ever been. What is going to uh, break this impasse? What is going? What, in your mind, is needs to be done in order to get to a place where uh, global trade is accepted? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's certainly something that if I were uh, thinking about running for president in 2020 as a Democrat, I would really be thinking hard on right now because um, we cannot afford to withdraw from the world. But by the same token, we still have this perception problem that, um, gosh, you know, if if the benefits of trade are not being felt across the entirety of the economy, then what's what's the point and should we be you know taking more of a trump position and i think a lot of congressional republicans are also dealing with this right now really thinking hard about both what they've historically believed in and also the sort of populism that uh, the president has really tapped into, and obviously we've seen in in other elections this year, you know, the cost for Republicans in their primaries of going against the president can be pretty high, as we saw in South Carolina with Mark Sanford uh, and some other folks this year. Thanks very much for being with us. James Wise is the Senior Vice President for Height Consulting Group in Washington. You can follow them online at Height LLC, talking about the potential for the U.S. to withdraw from the World Trade Organization. Well, life in the fast lane for Tesla. Yes, we're not going to forget Tesla and their churning out of 5,031 Model 3 sedans, and whether this is really a turning point for the company or whether this is uh, more of a publicity point for the company. Uh, Joining us, uh, Gordon Johnson, analyst at the Vertical Group, and Kevin Tynan, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Auto Analyst. All right, Gordon Johnson, do do it short and sweet for us. Give us your bear case for why investors ought to stay away from Tesla. Right. So they said this is a factory gate number, which means it's cars out of the factory, which is not completed cars. Um, If you look at over the first 84 days of the second quarter, on average, they produced just 1,960 cars. That's 
far less than what Elon Musk said they would do in April of 3,000 to 4,000 cars. And we think there's going to be significant cash burn. They built about a half billion dollars of Model 3 inventory in Q2. Um, and we think there's going to be further cash burn in Q3 and 4. Uh, so for those reasons, you know, we're bearish on the stock. Kevin, what is your thoughts? Response to, uh, to, to Gordon? Yeah, and I, I would agree with everything Gordon said. And I think that... You know, fundamentally for me, you know, and I think this is the issue with with most analysts, at least the bearish ones, are, you know, even going back to battery electric consumer demand, you know, um, just sort of questioning if if it is this disruptor that everybody sees just based on uh, pricing, uh, recharge time, the infrastructure. Uh, so the, so I wonder, you know, just even in, in, at the base level, is is the addressable market as large as everybody sees? And then when you roll through what that means for the demand levels, not being able to get to production, you get through the financial statements of Tesla and you say, okay, even if they can do all these things, now you're going to assign a, a ridiculous multiple to ultimately what is an automaker. <clears throat> and it's, a ver- it's very different difficult to reconcile all those things back to where you see uh, the market cap of this company. I'm a little disappointed, Kevin, because I thought maybe you and Gordon could wrestle this out, but if you're agreeing... Um, but anyway, Gordon, one of the things that I, I think I read in this in, in all this uh, foofara that's come out about Tesla today is that they don't whoa, expect whoa, whoa, to have... Foofara? Foofara. Yeah, a lot of hullabaloo and, okay. and stuff like that. But the no capital raise this year, Gordon, is this, uh, isn't that good news? Um, well, no, I don't think it's good news. I think that, um, you know, they've essentially sent out requests to all of their um, essentially Model 3 reservation holders to configure. And that's another way of them generating cash. But it's not really cash. They, um, It's not really their cash, right? If you have somebody's deposit and they haven't effectively configured that deposit and purchased that car, it's not your cash, but that's cash that Tesla has. I think the other key dynamic here, which I haven't seen really get any press, is their net reservation number. Their net reservation number dropped to 420,000 cars. We spoke to management at Tesla about a week ago, and they told us they haven't had any new reservations of Model 3s for roughly a year. That's from them. Um, But this number confirms that quote, i.e., they've had 455 net reservations since basically August of 2000, I think, 17, and now that number drops to 420. So that means that either you've had cancellations of 30,000 or you've had deliveries of roughly 30,000. You haven't had new reservations to come in to take over that. So it looks like demand um, could be a problem for them. And instead of being supply-constrained, as we enter next year, they may be demand-constrained. I think that's something nobody's considering. Also, last thing, Model S and X sales uh, combined, uh, year-to-date 2018, down 6% versus 2017. Last year, that number was up 61%. That's also something we don't think people are focused on, cannibalization of Model S sales via Model 3 sales. Kevin, it sounds like from what Gordon has been saying that it used to be cool to wait for a Tesla, but patience is up. Is that your analysis as well? Yeah, and, and you know, one thing, Bob, I, I looked at, and I went back a, a bunch of years and started in, in 2013, and I looked at three drivetrain technologies, right, the gasoline hybrids, the plug-in electrics, and then the battery electrics, and I looked at them as a group, and I took those numbers forward from uh, from 2013 through 2017, and when you look at that, those three technologies together, actually, 
unit sales were down something like 4%. So it makes me think that this group of, of sort of first adopters or technology buyers of these alternative drivetrains are really the same size group. And over the years, all they've done is moved up as the technology has advanced, not necessarily pulling in new buyers to the group. And I think that goes to Gordon's point about these reservation holders. And it makes me wonder, you know, are, are there it's one thing to have, let's say, 400,000 reservations for Model 3, but are you getting those every single year? Are you growing that base every single year? And I think a lot of that comes down to the idea of this uh, elusive $35,000 Model 3. If you can't get average transaction prices in that in that range, then, then I don't think you ever get that kind of consistent year-over-year -year, uh, demand for this technology. Kevin, do you believe that in 10 years, majority of people will be driving electric powered vehicles um i i i, I hesitate I, I i don't think so um and again this you know china could be a big part of this of amortizing the cost of the technology and bringing it down and making it um, more affordable but if you look at average transaction price in the u.s of, of every vehicle it's a roughly around thirty five thousand dollars and i think you have to be at that or below it and be profitable to even talk about half the market being battery electric Thanks very much, gentlemen. Very interesting. Gordon Johnson of Vertical Research Group and also Kevin Tynan, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Auto Analyst. Pump it up. Jessica Summers, she's an oil trading reporter with Bloomberg News. And Jessica is going to answer the big question for me for this week when a lot of Americans are traveling for the holiday. Are we going to have higher gas prices? It's looking rough. So uh, essentially, you know, we're really definitely seeing consumers hurting at the pump here and into the holiday weekend. Although crude prices are dropping today, you know, they're still trading in the 70s which is a very high level, it trickles down to the retail level, and that's that really puts pressure on retail prices. Um, so right now we're seeing U.S. retail gasoline average at about $2.86 a gallon. That's very close to $3, and that would be the highest since 2014. Because I was traveling this weekend, and we mm -hmm. have uh, in New Jersey about 274, but you cross the border into a different state, and it's like 320. It's pretty bad. I um, do you remember? It wasn't that long ago we had a dollar fifty a gallon gas. That's that's no more the case. So um, one other point to add is, you know, these higher prices don't seem to be stopping anyone from actually planning a July Fourth road trip. AAA has come out and said that about thirty nine point seven million travelers will hit the road for July Fourth. Well, let me just offer a little international perspective, even though I know you're just going to be driving in the United States or maybe even North America. But, uh, you know, let's say that we go to $3 a gallon, okay? Mm -hmm. Right? That's 15 cents above the national I think we're already right we're, now. Yeah. All right. We're okay. already there in a lot of places. Um, uh, just about, you know, Mexico, more expensive. China, India, South Africa, Japan. The list goes on. South I don't Korea. think I'm driving to Japan this I week. I understand <laughs> that. But, I mean, these all right, Japan is uh, still... I, recognizes the third largest economy in the world they're paying yes. nearly five bucks a gallon china's paying four and a half dollars a gallon most of europe is paying over six and a half dollars a gallon but to, and they still manage to go ahead uh, to paraphrase the bbc low yeah. petrol prices are a god-given right for americans well what but no but my, po my point is that when you, when you factor in inflation uh over the course of many years gasoline prices 
are pretty uh, inexpensive compared to what the rest of the world has had to and, pay. And just as Jessica just just said, uh, AAA is saying that nobody's changing their plans no. for right. this. They're, so they haven't no, gone up that much. Travel is actually going to be at 5.1% more than last year. So people really are taken to the roads as yep. a result. So all right, a question to you, though, is this whole idea of whether the Saudis are going to pump more oil in order to make up for shortfalls in maybe production from Venezuela, uh, is that likely to have any effect? I mean, they said, what, about a million barrels a day more? That, they, that was what they were going to pump? So, yeah. So what's interesting is that, you know, OPEC and allies such as Russia have come out and agreed to the one mar- million barrel a day uh, increase in output. So now we have President Trump, you know, talking to the king and saying that he wants Saudi Arabia to pump two million barrels a day. So, you know, if we do see them reach, you know, their maximum capacity, let's say, and that's at about, you know, 12 million barrels a day, that could really push the price of oil down further. Is there any likelihood that that's going to happen? I mean, is that in their interest to do so? Because isn't it uh, sort of a conflict that's been going on between Saudi Arabia and Iran in terms of how much oil OPEC would pump? Absolutely. You know, after this deal has been announced, we actually had the Iranian oil minister coming out recently and saying, look, you know, any production increase above the limits that were agreed upon would breach the deal. You know, he also said that OPEC should reject the U.S. call for a production increase, which is, quote, politically motivated against Iran. So, you know, this call on Saudi Arabia to really ramp up output is creating a lot of rifts and tensions between some of the world's largest crude producers. Now, just, you know, in the recent history, uh, uh, what was it, about a year ago, maybe two years ago, OPEC was was uh, on the verge of collapsing. Mm-hmm. And then this last uh, meeting that we had, however, it seemed like they were all getting along like old chums. Now, all of a sudden, between meetings, we have this pressure from the U.S. president. And is it is it the is it really the the pressure from Trump that's really creating this rift? Well, one more interesting thing to point out to you, and this is something that investors have been talking to me about, and it's what's causing the market, you know, to have a little bit of nervousness in it is that, you know, if Saudi Arabia does in fact listen to Trump and if, you know, they do pump at their maximum output levels, they might run out of spare capacity. So that's something that worries investors because right now we're looking at global supply risks and issues in places like Libya and Canada and Venezuela. So if Saudi Arabia is not going to have that spare capacity, that could be a real problem. And the other thing investors are telling me is that, you know, Saudi, if they do decide to ramp up and listen to Trump and do this quickly, it could actually harm their own oil fields. And, you know, by trying to turn the taps up too fast, that could be a huge problem. And also, isn't it worth noting that the amount of uh, of U.S. oil imports has been dropping like every year since something like t- 2006? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that the figures are like we've cut almost 10 million barrels per day. Of, of imports, while at the same time, uh, we've increased production to the point where I think most of it's coming from the Permian Basin in, in uh, East in Absolutely. West Texas. Hitting record levels of productions. We're hitting record levels of U.S. crude exports. Um, there's been a real demand for U.S. crude globally lately, and that's because some of these supply risks that I've mentioned, these supply outages in places all over the world have sort of hit at the same time, and that's why we are seeing these record U.S. crude export levels. We still, though, uh, we haven't uh, achieved this uh, mythical energy uh, uh, self-sufficiency, though, have we? 
are we close to it? Are we going to get it get there, or uh, we're still going to have to import? You know, that really depends. One issue we are seeing in the U.S., uh, you know, sort of our bottlenecks in the Permian Basin. And, you know, there's just there's so much production. There's so much pumping going on. And, you know, there's just not enough. There's transportation and, and logistic constraints. So we're not seeing that oil being able to ship down to the Gulf Coast for export quick enough. And there's just not a lot of pipeline capacity that's spare. Right. So it's our own bottlenecks. Jessica Summers, Bloomberg News. Thanks so much for coming in and talking about oil. Listen to this Yes, he comes equipped with his own music, Bloomberg Stocks columnist Dave Wilson. And remember to send Dave an email at dwilson at bloomberg.net. Sign up for his daily free email newsletter and maybe even share one of your musical selections. And Dave, your chart of the day, I believe, has to do with interest rates and maybe not following interest rates as a guide to what stocks are going to do. Right. you got to get out of your own way, as you two sang. And, of course, uh, they were here in New York uh, last week, uh, Sunday night. Bruce Springsteen saw them. On Friday night, they were in New Jersey, and I saw them, so I had to play the song. In any case, this is all about sort of the scenario going into the start of the year. And stop me if you've heard this one before, because I find myself talking about it day-to-day, looking at markets is that you know you were supposed to because rates were going to rise interest rates you know the financial stocks were supposed to be the beneficiaries of that so you know you figure they'd move higher and then all the rate sensitive areas of the market think about uh, real estate phone companies utilities they were not supposed to do so well well you could argue the rate sensitive stocks kind of held up their end of that bargain because if you sort of combine the three groups into an index, weight them equally, which you can do on the Bloomberg terminal, so I did it for the chart, you find out that overall they fell a little bit more than 3% in the first half. Trouble is, the financial companies did not perform as you know, so the prevailing view might have suggested. Rather than rising, I mean, they hit their peak back in January, you know, when uh, the S&P 500 more broadly did. And they struggled for a good part of the first half to sustain any gains at all. And last month, you had a 13-session losing streak for the S&P 500 Financials Index. So it ended with a loss of 4.9%. Yeah, the financial stocks did worse than the rate-sensitive shares. Even though you had the Federal Reserve lifting its benchmark rate twice, you had the 10-year Treasury yield going up about half a percentage point. Now, you can argue why it is that what was happening in the market was you know, the gaps between, say, money market uh, rates and bond yields were getting narrower, not wider, and that meant the financial companies would have a harder time making money. But what you can't deny is that things just didn't work out the way many people were anticipating when the year began. If you want to know more, folks, send me an email. I'll get you the chart, the explanation that goes with it, and everything I do going forward. The email address is dwilson at bloomberg.net. That's dwilson at bloomberg.net. Thank you very much, Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks columnist. In the Bloomberg studio, just mere meter away from me is Emma Parmar. She's the... Consumer retail reporter for Bloomberg News. And she's got this, I think one of the biggest surprises of the stock market this year is Macy's. It's up about, uh, what what I got there, 44%. 44.5%. Since the first of the year. And uh, 
Tema's got a reason why it's doing so well. Mm-hmm. So Macy's a couple of years ago bought this uh, con- cosmetics company called Blue Mercury, and um, it's you know a competitor to say Sephora or Ulta. They do cosmetics and sort of spa services as well. And so what Macy's is doing now is they're planning to open up sixty new standalone stores of Blue Mercury, um, about thirty this year, about thirty next year, and they'll also op- open some additional stores inside of existing Macy's buildings. So as part of their big push of the brand. Um, they've opened up about 100 stores in the past three years alone. So it's been a pretty steady and pretty brisk pace of um, opening up a lot of these cosmetic stores. Well, hasn't the, the push of retail really been online? And here mm-hmm. Macy's is, figuratively, I guess, mm-hmm. building bricks and mortar. And ha- so how are they going to incorporate? Are they going to incorporate new technology? And, and just to let you what? know, this yeah. is actually a reverse because they started – they started as an online yes. shopping website. Blue Mercury did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. So they really got into the online shopping before it became as big of a craze as it is now. And so um, they are adept in both the online shopping purchases and, to your point, you know, the brick and mortar, um, given a lot of struggles that we've seen with brick and mortar and retail and kind of the death of like these sort of big institutional malls. Um, but the reason that, you know, how this fits into Macy's sort of broader strategy is um, it's it's trying to defend uh, the rise of some of the the competitors like Sephora. Um, it's trying to you know keep up with online um, buying and online um, demand from from consumers. And you know earlier this year, the outgoing CFO of Macy's had said that its beauty division needed to be rethought. And so this push kind of jives with this move to you know make some progress. Um, and they say Macy's said you know in their earnings that cosmetic sales gained traction the first quarter first quarter of this year and helped their revenue beat estimates. So, you know, it, it is um, part of their real big push, and they have been talking about expanding this chain uh, since they, they took it on. Um, what's interesting is, you know, since Blue Mercury kind of came about, they were focusing on these big cities, these coastal cities, and what they're doing now is really targeting smaller towns and cities like Raleigh, um, North Carolina, and uh, other smaller spaces. We're making Chattanooga more beautiful. That's what we're, <laughs> we're doing here. everything more beautiful. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, Hema Parmar, uh, Bloomberg News reporter, covering the world of uh, Macy's and now uh, Blue Mercury, of course. They bought, you know, they bought uh, Blue Mercury, I think it was 2000 and. Fifteen for like two hundred and ten million dollars, and and you've been shopping right. there ever since, haven't you? Thank you. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home, honey? Please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. We have less than 10 minutes to the close on the first day of the second half of 2018. And to help us drive there is Mark Esposito. He's the CEO of Esposito Securities in Dallas. Welcome, Mark. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. The the one big question for me for me is, and I'm sure Pim's got more sophisticated questions, but last year, 19% uh, increase in the S&P 500. This year, so far, less than 2%. What's going on? 
Well, I think that these trade tariffs have really tempered that marketplace. I think the real big upside this year so far has been in the composite in the technology sector. You know, AI, robotics, and technology are really hot. Um, I do think, you know, I'm still bullish on the market. We've got um, corporate buybacks at the highest level ever. Um, institutions are usually right. And last month we saw uh, retail peel out of a lot of $20 billion plus in equity assets, and they're usually wrong. Uh, Mark, I'm wondering if you could just give us your perspective right now on where you would put new money to work in the market. Yeah, I think to stay away from uh, trade short-term concerns, which I don't think are really long-term concerns, you know, it's best to buy service stocks like FANG stocks and to buy stocks here in the U.S. that don't operate overseas operations. There's many of those uh, that can be bought and, and that are reasonably priced. You say that there's that's a short-term play, but what about this uh, nonsense with the WTO? Does that make you pause in your – does that make you scary a little bit or what? Yeah, I think, you know, the stimulus package here in the U.S. is working. I mean, we're going to see, you know, continued upside to corporate earnings. Um, I think cooler heads will prevail in the trade talks. I think that, you know, when you look at U.S.-China, if you add in U.S. subsidiaries, then you look and see that there's a zero-sum game. The trade deficit is zero if you add in U.S. subsidiaries. And so we're fighting over nothing. There may be one lopsided company here or a couple lopsided companies there, but at the end of the day, net-net, it's all flat between the two largest economies. And I think, you know, uh, Mr. Trump has an agenda. I think it's correct, and I think he's doing the right thing which has made the markets a little bit more volatile. But I think at the end of the day, you know, we'll see. Uh, that's not going to be the biggest news of the year. I think stimulus and what the Fed does will really govern that. Mark, just to return to some of the stocks that you were thinking of, Facebook, for example, up 11.5% so far this year. You're still a buyer at nearly $200 a share. It's right now 196 It's up 25 bucks. Yeah, I think, you know, in this trade, war environment, uh, those stocks will do better than most. I think some that are under pressure from the trade wars are not going to fare so well in the short term. But like I said, we, we still see um, in the short term that we're in a bull market. Okay. But when do you sell? I mean, if you're a holder of Netflix, you've got a gain of more than 106% this year. When do you sell some of your holdings? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, if you're up 100%, you got a tax problem on your hand. And so, yeah, what do you do? I think most people would opt to say, it's still a great company. It's going to grow. I'll keep it. I don't want to pay tax on double my money. So hold on to the shares. Yeah, that's what I would do if it was my stock. Is there anything you'd stay away from? You you were talking about how uh, the, the short-term trade stuff might might weigh heavily on some stocks. Yeah, there's been some stocks that have been highly affected, like Harley-Davidson, who, you know, may have to go offshore to produce some of their motorcycles. I think there's a whole realm of those stocks that, you know, you may just in the short term want to stay away from. And then they'll become buys again, I think, when the trade talks simmer down and the political powers go back to work governing their countries. 
Amazon. What about Amazon.com? Stock up 46% so far this year. Uh, is Amazon a stock you want to own at the 1700 bucks a share? Yeah, it's hard, you know, to buy stocks that are up 46%. But if you look at the future of the world and our economy, I mean, technology, AI, and supply chain is where everything's growing. And so, you know, the composite's up 11% this year. That's for a reason. The future is AI and technology and robotics in our country, and Amazon hits all those themes um, in some way, shape, or form. Can it grow at 46% forever? No, no company can, but uh, I don't really choose valuations. But I would say that I would love to be in the technology, robotics, and AI space. That's a great space to be in. Do you feel the same way about the energy sector right now? Well, I do. And here's why I feel strongly about energy. You know, I've been saying for a few months that oil can hit 100. Um, I still see that being the case because I do believe, and even Mr. Trump over the weekend tweeted that he believes more supply is needed, um, that we're in an undersupply situation. And with oil, you just don't on Monday, you know, say I want more production on Tuesday, you get it. It takes months could even take longer for that supply to come online. Now, at 75 bucks a barrel, people can make money on oil, but they got to get it to market, and it's not ready, and there's not enough. And so I think in the short term, you'll see, you know, oil especially go up. Got it. Thanks very much. Uh, Mark Esposito, he is the chief executive of Esposito Securities, uh, joining us from Dallas, Texas. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.